You're listening to The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. Come with us as we meet pioneers from the fields of design, art, fashion, sport, music and more. Diverse fields, a range of talents. What unites all these trailblazers is a certain mastery. A mastery of craftsmanship, of technique, of materials, of innovation to drive what they do. We'll hear about their life and their work and hopefully understand just a little bit more about how those notions have shaped them. Maybe too we'll divine a sense of the philosophy that's brought them here and might just inspire us in however small a way to follow in their storied footsteps. So far this series, we've heard from accomplished visual artists. We've heard from photographers, from designers of everything from magazines to culinary experiences to typefaces. Today, we're meeting the explorer, adventurer and campaigner, David Rothschild. It's a huge pleasure to welcome David to Monocle Studios here in London. David, I wanted to begin by asking you, given we're starting off, almost sort of how how you're introduced to people or how you introduce yourself, because... It's a bit tricky. I was trying to come up with a catchy idea. I was like, do I say writer? Do I say sort of eco-warrior? Do I say adventurer, explorer, etc., etc.? Um, it's tricky. Do you, do you mind, I suppose, is the, is the first question. You know, I struggle with the same thing myself. I think it's I have an identity crisis every day. <laughs> I'm like, who am I? What am I doing? Where do I fall? You know, and I, I think you quickly realise that we... We need labels to try and organise things so that we can put people into a compartment. And I think I've always been curious about what's in the other compartment. Um, and that's driven me to sort of look at things across multi-disciplines and, and not really try and identify with one, two thing. That's basically a, a way of me saying I'm a jack of all trades and a, <laughs> and a master of none, basically. But I did have an idea the other day about, because someone was saying to me, you know, are you an adventurer or an explorer? And that was a question that was posed to me, and it made me think about that a lot. And I sort of came up with this sort of idea that I'm more, or, or the theory that I'm more an explorer than an adventurer. And I say that because I think that one is, you know, an adventurer, I think, is more unlocking human potential and someone who's taking physical feats to achieve often a personal goal. They're adventuring somewhere extreme they're probably wearing some technical clothing or some some outfit to make them move faster or climb higher or jump further and and you know it's often driven by sort of some sort of self-interest to achieve that goal and for me exploring is sort of more akin to understanding and being curious and it's a curiosity factor so you don't have to wear clothes that are going to make you jump higher and swim further and all those things you don't have to be physically bound it's a mental state Um, and I think right now what's really exciting is that in my world of exploring is is exploring the relationship between humans and nature and that opens up so I'd say I'm more an explorer of the I'm a sort of a curious explorer than, than a than a out and out adventurer. That's basically me saying that I'm, I can't do one on push up. Basically, <laughs> basically I'm very well put. Yeah, but um, so I don't know. It's funny. I, I always think it's when you get the you know when you're flying somewhere on the form and it says occupation. And depending on where you are, you've got to be quite careful. Like I, I've had my you know visa refused going to China, and I've had times when I've turned up in countries where maybe the, the sort of uh, the, the environment isn't right to put you know a writer. So what kind of writer are you? What are you covering? Are you a, does that mean you're a journalist? And, mm. and sometimes, you, you know, you sort of, I, I put something down. Like, I, I won't remember once I was traveling to, 
Australia and, and I just wasn't thinking and I think I was just being and, and sort of stubborn as always or thought it's funny and and I put on my form pig farmer and I arrived and I didn't think anything of it because I did I'm, I've got sort of OCD and you know so as soon as you know you get your little immigration form even if you've got a 24-hour flight ahead of you I'm like f- filling it out as if I'm standing next in line and I and I so I'd completely forgotten that I put pig farmer down as this as my occupation I love pigs, by the way. That's another story. But I, um, I got to the immigration and you know tick tick, no problem. Went got my bag, and then obviously as I was going through customs, I got a sort of three-hour detention because they looked and said, "Pig farmer, right? You've obviously been on a farm. It means you're transmitting some sort of disease. We need to look at all your boots and clean your boots and look at all your gear and like you know because there was another question further down that said, "Have you been on a farm?" And obviously I said no. It's just stupid, you know, not putting the two. Not the left hand wasn't speaking to the right hand or left hand side of the brain. It's the right hand side of the brain. Um, so sometimes it does backfire on you when you are a <laughs> jack of all trades and a master of none, and and you make stuff up. So, uh, so watch what you put on an immigration watch form. What this is a, a... we're getting good lessons already. You are. Um, David, to pick up on what you said about the relationship between humans and nature earlier, so much of what you've done speaks to that theme. You were very much in the vanguard of this. You've written books about it to try and help people understand why it matters so much. I guess we're still in the grip of a something of an existential crisis for the planet, but have we made any progress? Has the narrative moved on, or do you become more despairing almost the more that you learn? I mean, I think if someone asked me today if I'm optimistic, and I think I'm a sort of an optimistic pessimist. You know, I, I sort of think about, um, you know, if we think about humanity as evil can evil, right? It's a bit of an odd analogy, this one, but bear with me. Um, so, you know, evil's on his motorbike and off we set and we hit and we hit this ramp which was you know the industrial revolution and we've suddenly done this incredible jump and we're flying through the air of consumption and modernization and all these things and we're really quite chuffed with ourselves and maybe we wave you know and we wave back at ourselves and we're patting ourselves on the back and we're suddenly realizing that we are maybe our takeoff was too good, maybe our acceleration and our um, you know our habits uh, and that lift off means that we might miss this ramp, this landing ramp and and what we've done with the landing ramp is that we've eroded it and we've mor- we've remortgaged it and we've made it smaller and we've sold parts of it you know and we've done all these things to it to make our landing even more tenuous and and unstable and what's happened, I think is we're, we're at that point where we know we're going to come down with a bang um, and we know that evil can evil would break his legs and arms and all the rest of it. Um, but the question is, will we break our necks? Um, you know, and how will we how will we adapt? And I think adaption is probably one of the things that we need to mobilize now. And I think the frust- it's more frustrating than anything because the narratives that we've heard in this space, you know, have been percolating for, you know, I mean, you could say that the first kind of big environmental movement was in the early 60s, you know, spawned by, you know, seminal publications like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, which, you know, sort of looked at the use of pesticides and the losing of our wildness. And, and, and all the way through, we've had these kind of sort of peaks of interest and and, and these narratives from scientists in the environmental space and first they're all labeled hippies and it was a big part of a bigger movement of free love and music and culture and it but it was you know there was underneath it all was kind of 
you know, a, a love and, and, and compassion for the natural world was very much intrinsically linked into that movement. What you can see is fluctuations of interest that are becoming, the beats between them are becoming far shorter, right? So if you were looking at like an ECG and a heart monitor, you know, we're sort of getting to a point where it's, it's gone sort of boom, boom. Boom, boom, to like boom, 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 you know, and, and, and the rate, that's my, my heartbeat, like the rate of um, information and the rate of exposure to this, to, to the climate crisis, as it's sometimes phrased, is, is becoming much more prevalent. And I think that's also obviously related to we live in a world of, you know, what I call weapons of mass distribution, right? So we've got these devices that now allow us to publish information, whether it's true or not, quicker than ever and disseminate that information as broadly as possible very quickly. So we've got access to seeing the world like never before. We've seen a lot more scientific rhetoric become mainstream. It hasn't just remained in the sort of peer-reviewed journals that, you know, has done for the last 40 years. It's actually now really become, I think, a common narrative. And But I think the scary thing about it all is that the sort of um, our sort of our focus tends to be more on what's wrong versus what could be right. David, can we talk a little bit more about the progress that's been made? If we look, for example, at plastics and ocean waste, if we reflect right back to your famous plastiki ocean voyage, you must be pleased, I suppose, at the changes, however limited they may be in the big picture, that we have seen since those days. Perhaps you can reflect a little on that story for us. The very reason we're sitting here is that we are hopefully telling a story or we're, we're, we're you know, this is a platform for stories and stories are the gravitational pull towards where we position ourselves in life and where we come from and where we what we belong to and who we belong to and and I would say that for a lot of the issues that we've discussed or mentioned so you know climate change is a data driven story and our brains don't you know basically connect to data in the same way that they connect to narratives, right? So even though data can make up a story, unless it's articulated in a way or visualized in a way that is emotional and and, and triggers a response and, and elicits a response, it can often get dismissed or overlooked or, you know, become confusing. And so I think with plastic, there is a very clear narrative that can either start with you seeing something because you can see an animal and we've all seen it all we've got to do is google plastic and ocean and and there's 20,000 images of you know seabirds cut open or whales or turtles or things that trigger a very very visceral and, and and real emotional context in our brain you know it takes animals that you know again i never met anyone who hates animals and goes oh my god that's just appalling and it shocks you and then you can the next clear storytelling is your daily journey that you can relate to i can relate to going to the supermarket and buying some berries or you know putting my produce into a, a trolley and looking at it and it's all encased in plastic and getting home and unpacking a box that's arrived from Amazon and it's all encased in plastic. So you can start to connect the dots and you can start to see this sort of this this through thread that allows you to sort of say, well, okay, I could demand this or do that and that could have an impact. And you can start to piece it together. Whereas I feel like you take other issues like deforestation it's got nothing to do. I mean, I don't cut down trees. I don't, I've never been to the Amazon or species loss. Well, I mean, it looks like, I mean, I see birds and I see, you know, lizards and snakes. If I do, if I'm, I mean, you know, some people never seen a snake, right? So 
it's not it's not in your visceral it's not in your i you know it's not in your sort of uh, your world it's not right there and present whereas plastic is everywhere mm-hmm. you're part of it so i think it's the first one that kind of has really emotionally connected people they see a problem and they can see that there's a really direct consequence and personal responsibility that can be taken around an everyday action and that makes a difference David Rothschild, do stay with us. We'll have more from David in just a moment. But first, let's reflect on the incredible testimonies we've heard from all our storied masters in this series. These have all been building on the lessons provided by Tiffany & Company's own Chief Artistic Officer, Reed Krakoff, who kicked off the season. Let's complete the circle here and remind ourselves exactly how Reed, in the context of Tiffany's men's collection, describes the challenge and the reward of marrying simplicity and desirability to deliver something truly crafted. So one of the hardest things, I think, is to make something simple, but still desirable. And that balance between the two is sort of a never-ending quest, I would say. The idea of creating these pieces out of solid sterling silver, out of flat sheets of sterling, rendering something intricate and rendering something that is unrecognizable from that is, is pretty extraordinary. And it's something that's done by people that are second, third generation. It's something that you can't learn to do in six months. It's something that a lot of the people that are doing it have spent 10, 20, 30 years doing this. And it's, it's a true craft. And it's something that I would say in fashion, there's less and less. I'm talking about the difference between fashion and jewelry. I think one of the things I love about making jewelry is that there's a real appreciation and there's a real focus on quality and craftsmanship in a real way, not in a marketing sense. Because, again, everyone from you know, mid-market sportswear makers to, to luxury makers are, are saying that they are luxury and they're making things in the old-fashioned way. And then that's why we can justify this price. We don't really have to talk about it because you can see it. You can see it in the materials. You can see it in the finish. You can see it in just the presence of these pieces. They have a real importance to them and a simplicity to them, which, as I said, is, is tough to achieve. It takes a refinement and it takes a, a skill that just only comes with doing something for a very long time. Reed Krakoff there with a timely reminder about the meaning of quality, craft and mastery, elegantly summing up the learnings from this season of The Masters, with Tiffany and company. Now, though, back to this week's master, our last of the season indeed, the explorer and adventurer David Rothschild. David, is part of the challenge here bringing in strands that may at first glance seem disparate, like more and more people are interested in, say, the provenance of the goods they buy or the stories that, again, this idea of storytelling, the stories that companies they like, products they like, the stories they tell... Is it is important to bring those in as well? Because it's not unrelated to plastic or short-termism. If you say, well, look, if you instead spend a little bit more money buying products that are really crafted from sustainable resources that are made with traditional values, heritage, craft, done properly, everyone's a winner if we do that. And maybe you could tell us a bit about your, your experience with, uh, obviously, with you know, with Lost Explorer or other other things that you've done where... You know, you can. You're sort of demonstrating that these things are commercially viable as well. You know, doing good, doing good doesn't have to cost us. I suppose. Yeah. I think that that you know, with any sort of movement, if you think about it as a pendulum, it moves you know one way and the other, and on the edges, you're always going to find the extremes. And so, you know, for the majority of us, we sit in the middle and we get drawn to either extreme depending upon 
our, our influence, our socioeconomic status, depending on you know our access or our, or our awareness or all these other factors that come into you know you congregating in a certain part of that that movement and that swing. And I think it's interesting to see sort of you know spending a bit of time out on the west coast and seeing you know this example happen where you've got on one side this incredible movement of digitization and everything becoming you know app based digital based and on the other side you've got this really big movement of everybody making stuff the craft movement the maker movement and you know and that that sort of exemplifies it and i think as things went mass produced you know we then suddenly saw this kind of rising up of craft right and whether it's like you know you've seen it in industries where you've got like the massive brewing companies weren't aware that all of a sudden craft beer would become a phenomena. And everyone went, I actually don't want to just have a homogenized, you know, fizzy alcoholic beverage. I want something that is, you know, storied and labeled and says something about my values. And what's informed your approach to thinking about these sorts of things, the systems you follow? I wonder, was there a seminal text? Was it about a bit of a a eureka moment for you almost? Were there particular words of wisdom from one individual or was it a combination of all those things i think there's a uh, there's a nice um there's a let's say a nice phrase but it's a, a theory that einstein kind of perpetuated which was quantum entanglement right um okay, okay you may be losing me but go on yeah so he uh so he um he you know he obviously he was he was sparring with niels bohr and he came up with this theory of quantum entanglement basically in the simplest way of saying that we cannot describe one molecule without describing the rest everything is entangled everything is interrelated and and in a way that's kind of how i feel i don't think there was one aha moment i think i was just naturally more felt more comfortable just being outside in nature that was kind of like my happy place right and then as you meet people we are all an expression of the people that we meet along a journey that is life and so you know it's a conversation it's a book it's a meal it's a interaction it's a an adventure and i think i can't necessarily you know i could pinpoint people that i admire but i i i think ultimately you know it, it's a continual journey of learning and and actually i think for me it's funny i sort of more and more i kind of think to myself about you know this idea of just trying to not like to you know we're taught to learn i should say and actually what i've been really trying to do is teach myself to unlearn because i think we become so preconditioned in a way like this is my way this is exactly what i think this is how everything's got to be and then you find yourself falling into the same problem that you're talking about about you know not system you know thinking thinking in these very linear buckets and and i think that is my challenge my challenge is actually to go and spend more time in areas outside of the environmental field you know and go and spend more time in areas of you know human rights and gender equality and in, inside of you know cultural movements that i have no understanding of, you know out of my culture cultural and comfort zone right into places that i can just sit and listen and 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 let go of my preconceived ideas because i think whenever you get into a field you build up the narrative and that's your identity and that's identity so strictly attached and then so someone comes along and says yeah but i don't need that or i can't afford that or that's what you're saying is great for you over there but you haven't thought about us over here and i think that has been the biggest thing that i try and do now is to sort of figure out how to unlearn um because otherwise i'm just a broken record saying the same things over and over again and 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 i think it's you become a sort of a a dictator to your own ideas and i don't want that i want to kind of constantly learn and 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 unlearn 
to relearn, if that makes sense. You know, I think it makes perfect sense. Well, we started off by saying, you know, you feel more of an explorer. And I guess this is, you know, to sort of almost bring it back to stop where we started this idea of, of getting out there, constantly exploring. And I guess that requires a curiosity of of character, which you've clearly displayed throughout throughout your life. Do, do you not ever think, oh, I wouldn't mind just sitting down maybe under that apple tree in Somerset for a while do you, do you ever get I don't know whatever the opposite of sort of wanderlust is or yeah. maybe you indulge in that from time to time do you, um, or is that a thing is, can you kind of kick that kick that can down the road for a while I think that the grass is always greener right but I guess you still got to mow the lawn at some point <laughs> um, as someone said to me once I can't remember who said that but you know you get out on the road like I've been on the road most, most of this year I'm, you know I've been to some incredible places doing some incredible projects and then I've been sitting still for a few weeks and then I'm like, <laughs> I think I've got to go again, you know. And then when you're out there, I can't wait to get home. I, I, I think, you know, for me, I, I wake up every day and thank my lucky stars about the, the life that I get to, to, to lead, the people I get to meet, the place I get to go, the stories I get to tell, the stories I get to hear. And as I get older, I think, you know, I, I think I've been pretty bad at um at listening, that's one of the hardest things is to listen, you know. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier about why we think this the medium of radio and podcasts are so important because, you know, it's such, a, it's such an intimate thing to listen and, and to listen and, and validate others and, and listen to other opinions and, 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 and be able to then put that into your own work. And so travel and, and exploring different cultures and places gives you that opportunity because I think, you know, a lot of the time we are telling stories from a very one-dimensional space, which is, you know, the community we're in, the bubble we're in, the politics we all believe in, and we're saying the things that we all want to hear. And that doesn't necessarily stretch our growth and doesn't uh, of, of, of understanding. And so that, to me, is, is this sort of thirst for exploring because, you know, I think we have got, excitingly, a planet that can be explored much more easily and there are tools that allow us to see the world like never before especially the natural world I mean I think about the fact that I could now go out with a, a drone and a, a you know a mobile phone and I can fly over mountaintops that people haven't even climbed and I can use AI to you know map what's going on the top of that mountain and broadcast it at night time to a community who can comment on it and contribute to it and decentralize that content and understand it all for a couple hundred bucks, you know? And so we've got this capacity, you know, we can find underwater devices that can go down river systems, that, you know, and look at how rivers are working. So we can understand the world now and we can understand how, how we fit in that, like never before. So it's a really exciting time for exploring. It's a really exciting time to try and take these stories and bring them into, you know, these sort of disparate stories and bring them into a cohesive narrative. Um, and I like. I think that's really stories are so important. I want our movements to to remain movements and not just be moments. And I think the risk we run is that we're all massively over presented with content and stories. Uh, wise words, indeed, David. Thanks very much for interrupting your journey. I guess to share some of your story. There's that word again uh, with us. Great to meet you and great to hear more about uh, your journey. Thanks for coming to share it with us. Thank you. And you can find out more about Tiffany & Company's men's collection by heading to tiffany.com and searching for men's jewellery. Throughout this season of programmes, we've met inspirational innovators in the fields of design, art, music and more to find out how they've mastered their craft and become industry trailblazers. Why not listen back to the whole show archive at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
thanks to all our editors and production crew here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. This is The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. And for the last time in the series, thanks for listening.